from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to the program. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in today for Tony Perkins. And we are going to review the week that has been. And today, in the year 2020, Friday the 13th is a particularly ominous day. But in light of what we've all been through in 2020, I don't think any of us are scared of Friday the 13th. Today, we are going to talk about... Uh, we are going to cover some election stuff, but before we get to that, um, we are going to end up. We want to cover some book banning conversations, and in, it's it's eerie how this is happening. The transition is kind of happening in some people's minds. It's kind of not happening in some people's mind, but we are beginning to see some evidence of it, it's kind of back to the future in some way because. Uh, this is really going to be a carryover of the Obama administration in an Biden administration, and and there's good reasons why that would be. And we're starting to see some of those signs, not only in what's happening in the administration and who's, who would be appointed, but also in just how things are happening culturally and corporately. And we're going to talk about what Target did in banning a book. And then after that, we're going to bring in... Uh, Connor Semmelsberger, who is the legislative assistant for the Family Research Council. And we're going to talk about some strange election anomalies that have happened as we dig into the data, as we learn more, the further we get from Election Day. We know it's been a strange year, but it's been strange in ways that are not obvious. Then we're going to talk to Matt Carpenter, director of FRC Action about how the public thinks about this election. We've heard a lot of politicos tell us what we should think. What are people feeling and thinking? Was it a fair election? Was it not? And then we're going to close the program uh, with Kena Gonzalez, who is the director of state and local affairs at the Family Research Council. And he is going to tell us what we have learned about what happened on Election Day at the local level, what that means for the next one year, two year, four years, what that means for the next decade. So you really do want to, we're going to unpack a lot of what has happened out of this election. Every day we learn a little bit more. But before we do that, uh, we want to talk about a story uh, that's happened involving Target. Now, a few years ago, you probably recall when Target became the first national kind of retail chain to basically eliminate gender distinctions in their bathrooms. And they declared to the world that whatever you say you are, that's what you are in Target. And so if you want to uh, be, um, if, if you're a man, but you want to say you're a woman, you are welcome to use the woman's restroom and vice versa. Since then, they have been on the cutting edge of this gender revolution in introducing uh, gender neutral clothing as well. Because, you know, the whole boys section, girls section, women's clothes, uh, men's clothes thing is so antiquated. But now uh, they are the, the next frontier in this uh, gender war that Target really seems to be on the uh, frontier of corp in terms of corporations is a book that they have um, decided that they are no longer going to sell by Abigail Schreier, uh, who wrote the book in Irreversible Damage, the Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. And with us to talk about it today is Maria Keffler. She is a parent extraordinaire, co founder of Arlington Parent Coalition, which really has taken on this issue in her community. A great example of how to just take responsibility for what's going on around you and do something about it. She has a master's degree in educational psychology, so she understands a little bit about this as well. So, Maria, thank you for joining us today. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. 
Well, we are so glad to have you. If you could first, for, for our listeners who, um, who may not fully be up on this story, could you just give us a little more background on how this came to be an issue with this book? Right, yeah. Um, Abigail Shire's book, Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters, came out at the end of June. She's a Wall Street Journal journalist who she digs into social phenomena, digs into, you know, what's happening. And she saw this uh, thing happening with our young girls, with um, adolescent, uh, teenage girls. There's been a more than 4,000% increase in girls seeking help at gender clinics. The gender clinics are popping up all around the country. Ten years ago, there was one in this country. Uh, Now there's more than 50, and they just keep growing. And these girls are are trying to uh, change gender. They're deciding, I don't want to be girl. I'm opting out of this. And uh, a lot of the gatekeepers that we would expect to have these girls' best interests at heart, medical health care professionals, um, psychologists, the school system, all of the people that should be saying, hey, let's take a look at why you're feeling this way. Why do you feel like you're not a girl? Why do you feel like um, you want to be a boy? And let's figure out what's going on. Um, but that's not what's happening. These gatekeepers are failing these girls and boys. This is also happening with boys, but Abigail Schreier specifically took on the issue with girls because it's a larger segment of the population. Um, and these, these experts, the doctors, the psychologists, the therapists, the schools, the school counselors are all saying, yes, if you think that, then that's what you are. What you think is correct, what your body says has nothing to do with it. Biology doesn't have anything to do with gender. And they're encouraging these kids to transition to the other gender, which means social transition. Yeah. Maria, Mm -hmm. something I want to highlight that you said that I think is really important for everybody to just internalize is the fact that in the last 10 years, there has been a 4,000% increase in in these gender reassignments. Is that what it was? It was gender reassignments? It's... um, The 4,000 is girls who are seeking to transition genders, who are going to gender clinics seeking to transition, specific girls. And so the question there is, is that really, is is this a scientific medical thing where suddenly everyone is discovering that they were born differently than their bodies suggest they are, or is there more of a social contagion? But I think um, people need to understand how dramatic this has been as the public conversation about this issue has elevated kind of consciousness mm-hmm. about this. Suddenly you have this dramatic exponential increase in uh, in the willingness or the, or this sense, this revelation that young girls are having of, oh, I'm actually a boy when my whole life I've been told I I, I was a girl. Now, can you tell us um, how Target came to this decision? How did they, they they once were selling the book, then they made the the decision not to? What was it that triggered their decision to uh, stop sales of this book? Well, as far as I can tell, it's a few tweets. Um, Twitter, the Twitter universe is very much pro the trans agenda. And from what I can tell, a few people said, hey, Target, we don't like this book. This is a bad book. You shouldn't sell it. And Target said, oh, okay, then we won't. You know, businesses make decisions based on money, right? And Target is making their business decisions, whether it was the bathroom decision, um, their, you know, what they sell in their store, they're, they're making that based on money. And 
businesses are are being pressured by organizations like the Human Rights Campaign, which puts out their corporate equity index, which is basically it's putting the thumb screws to businesses who don't fully or don't support LGBTQ interests to the satisfaction of the Human Rights Campaign Foundation, yeah, which is I, the funding and lobby arm. And yeah, and so I they're getting pressured really- to come along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because, and, and when you talk about the financial incentives involved here, I'm not certain. I mean, Target is, Target is a very woke corporation, as demonstrated by the fact that they have basically made all of their facilities gender neutral already. But it's strange that that's not enough. That you can't just say, "Hey, we have a very clear position on this." That what you also have to do is you have to you have to oppose the expression of other of other points of views and and that's what i think this represents more than just this is who we are as a company um it's that we and and we also will do everything we can to make sure that to the extent we have control over this people will not be able to express a different point of view yeah well we're seeing this cancel culture all over the place the censorship this is not a new thing um and you're right the the woke horde has decided what the narrative is, and anyone who doesn't fall in line gets canceled. And we've seen this. Amazon refused to accept paid ads from Regnery Book. They couldn't advertise it. Um, there was There's a group of parents that put up a billboard advertising Abigail Schreier's book, and they started to GoFundMe to um, put up more billboards advertising it, and GoFundMe canceled them. Now there's over 30,000 GoFundMes for girls to have voluntary double mastectomies. They're euphemistically called top surgery. But if a girl who's 13, 14, 15 decides she wants to have her breasts removed, GoFundMe will support that. But they will not allow advertisements of billboards about um, Abigail Schreier's book. So we're seeing this all over the place. This is just a facet of this ideology and the people who are pushing it. It really is incredible, and I think one thing that that we as conservatives generally, and, and people define that term in different ways, but in general, we are free market people, and I, and I would put myself in that camp, that I believe, and, and, and this is a matter of conscience rights, and, and I actually believe in the a willing, the ability in the, of businesses and individuals to say, this is something I want to participate in, and this is something I don't want to participate in. So I don't think... I'm certainly not making, and I don't hear you making a legal argument where we say, well, we think Congress should step in and tell Target that they must sell this book. I think that is not what we are proposing. Um, what I think we're, we're concerned about is, is the, the cultural climate that is being created here. Because we, we know that when it comes to marriages, and we've talked about this conscience rights of businesses in other, in other contexts, not to be, have to buy birth control, not to have to decorate for same-sex weddings, not to have to take photos of events that you, that you personally have an objection to. So as a, as a matter of freedom, Target should have this freedom. But where is that line being drawn, and is it appropriate? And are we drawing lines in appropriate places? Because there, there are things, you know, Pornography. We hope that Target does not sell pornography. But what's interesting is that they create equivalency with things like, with things like swastikas and pornography, and simply expressing the idea that girls should be cautious before they decide to change their gender. Yeah, yeah, and that's all Abigail Schreier's book explored: is where is this coming from? What's causing this? What are some possible explanations for it? What are some things we should consider doing to help these girls? 
That's all that's in that book. I've read the entire book. Every word of it is valuable. And um, I agree with you. Um, mm -hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, I'll, I'll say that, Maria. You've, you've read every book, and I would say one way that people can push back on this is go find go find this book and buy it. Abigail Schreier's book, again, it's called Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. It is still available uh, online. You can find it. You can't find it at Target, but you can find it other places. <laughs> and do go go buy this because, one, as a, as a form of protest against this you know, this corporate decision, but also because you need to know the information that she's put in this, because this is not some rabid, uh, crazy person just ranting about things that she disagrees with. This is this is research. This is, you know, quote unquote, science, which we're supposed to love in every other context. Right. Um, But very Mm -hmm. quickly, and we don't have a lot of time, but tell me, uh, why is it that this issue triggers the left so much more than I think a lot of other issues do in one minute? We have. Oh, that's a good question. I think because it comes down to who is in charge. Is Am I in charge of myself um, and I can do anything I want with myself? And what does that mean for my relationships with other people? And I think it comes down to who has authority. Well, Maria Keffler, thank you so much for your time and for laying this out for us so well. We do appreciate it. And stay tuned with us on the other side of the break. We are going to be uh, discussing... Anomalies in the most recent election with Kamal, Connor Semmelsberger. Excuse me, Connor. So stay with us across the break, and uh, we will be right back. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org slash Bible and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org slash Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. In a recent poll... It was revealed that only 6% of Americans hold a biblical worldview. This research also indicated that Christianity's teachings on abortion, marriage, and homosexuality are not only misunderstood, but seen as dangerous and subversive. In response to this trend, Family Research Council has released a new set of resources in our Biblical Worldview series. In addition to our full publications, which cover the topics of Christian political engagement, abortion, religious liberty, and human sexuality, FRC now offers helpful summaries of each publication in this series, as well as accompanying prayer guides to help you and your family pray through these important issues. And finally, our popular biblical principles for political engagement is now available in Spanish. All these resources are free and available at frc.org worldview. Again, that's frc.org worldview. 
Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I am sitting in for Tony Perkins today. So glad that you are with us. As we move further and further away from Election Day 2020, data continues to pour in. We learn about segmentation in, in states and in demographics around the country and who they voted for and who they didn't vote for and why and in what rates and how that compared to every election before us uh, prior to prior to 2020. And we are going to dig a little bit more into that. And in order to have this conversation and discover some things that are actually pretty unusual and pretty remarkable about this particular election, we're going to bring in Connor Semmelsberger, who's the legislative assistant for the Family Research Council and a great researcher and who has discovered a lot of stuff that you are going to be interested in. Connor, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you so much for having me on today. Well, we are thrilled to have you. Uh, because I know you've been hard at work, and I would like you to, uh, at, at a high level, low level, wherever you want to start, and I know that you've spent the last week and a half, a good part of it, um, digging into the data. Tell us what you have found. Tell us what's been surprising about what happened on Election Day. Yeah, well, I think the long and short of it is that conservative values won big across America, except tested swing states. And like you said, our team at FRC has been digging into the data from presidential races down to those those local state races. And, and here's what we found. You know, you're hearing lots of trends of conservative values, Republican candidates winning across the board, holding down key Senate races in places like Montana and Iowa, flipping House districts from places all the way from Miami to Orange County, California, all the way to New York City, conservatives flipping House districts back from the Democrats, and even holding on to key control in some of these states uh, for the state legislatures as well, holding on or even expanding majorities in the state houses and legislatures. The only place we did not see these trends continue, surprisingly, or maybe unsurprisingly, are places like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Georgia, all the states that continue to have questions and raise concerns about election integrity. Well, t tell us a little bit more about that. How do you how is it that we can that we see what specific data is it that says, well, Pennsylvania, M Michigan, Wisconsin and Georgia, these are different than the other 46 states. What, what is it that you're seeing that says these really stand out? Yeah, I think, first of all, we have to look at the presidential data. So, first of all, look at these key cities in some of these states. So, across the Rust Belt, the Midwest, where Trump heavily campaigned in those final days trying to win over these key states, 
it actually yielded results. When you look at some of these cities, Trump improved his percentage of the vote in huge uh, urban cities in these regions um, from 2016, namely Buffalo, Cleveland, Ohio, uh, Toledo, Ohio, which is right across the border from Michigan into Ohio, Chicago, even he gained 5% of his vote from 2016 in Chicago and even nearby Gary, Indiana. He, he improved his stock in these urban centers, which historically have been Democratic strongholds. When you look at similar cities like Milwaukee, just across the border there from Illinois, and Pittsburgh, very much a makeup of some of these cities, not only did Trump uh, not gain support, even in Pittsburgh, he lost support from 2016, but Joe Biden performed historically better than even Obama did in 2008, a very favorable candidate, one of the, the strongest outturns we ever saw in 2008, Biden even outperformed in those two cities, but not in any of those other Rust Belt cities I just mentioned. So when you look at those numbers, something comes up. What's what's different about Pittsburgh or Milwaukee that's not the same case in Chicago, Gary, near every other city that has the same demographic or regional makeup? Do you have a theory or is it this just a question at this point? Yeah, so it's, it starts with a question, but I think the theory holds, why are conservative values winning, again, in places in urban cities like Miami and other places, but not maybe in these states? Even taking another layer down, we look at some of these House races where Republicans were poised to flip even more House races. Where were these – where did Republicans fail to, to flip Democrat uh, – uh, Democrats that were vulnerable outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, outside of Detroit and Michigan. It, it's not surprising that even the House districts, that Republicans had great prospects, great challengers to unseat these Democratic comments, and they failed short in, in these local counties. And so for now, um, I think the, the main call, the main takeaway is these are things that are the, that are not just something that us policy wonks like to look at, but are actually some anomalies. Is it that the that, that Trump just did not resonate with the folks in Pittsburgh, but he did with folks in Cleveland? Uh, maybe that's likely. But again, those regional differences are so strong. It would it would be unlikely, very unlikely, not not just some statistical anomaly that that would happen. And, and, and then you take it down to the state races and the House races. And so for now, I think as these states continue to to check in with what is going on with these these local counting and in, in these big urban areas and courts are beginning to look at these these cases as a, as a positive ruling for the trump administration just came out from pennsylvania just yesterday i think looking at these type of anomalies is is going to be key moving forward now connor one thing that was different about this race than previous ones is president trump because he is i it's certainly in my lifetime he is the most polarizing uh incumbent that has ever run for re-election and, and I do not find it impossible to believe that he incited he, – he got 10 million more votes in 2016 than he – or in 2020 than he did in 2016, but his opponent got, you know, more than that. And, and do you, is it possible to attribute this just to the fact that, well, so many people decided they'd had enough of Trump that they just came out to vote against him? I think that's one great running theory, and we've heard some commentary on that quite a bit. But I think what it comes down to is if that were the case – uh, it was likely that at least one, even one House seat in Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, Georgia, even one of potentially 10 or 12 potential pickups would have went in the Republicans' favor, right? If, if people did differentiate, maybe they just didn't vote for Trump or they voted for Biden, but they like conservative values. So they voted for the Republican Senate candidate or the House candidate or the state candidate. But we didn't see that. And I think a great example of that is John James in Michigan, right? Uh, one of the strongest Republican candidates we've had in a long time to unseat the stronghold Democrat senators there. John James, he's an African American. He's a business owner. He, he's fought in wars. He really embodies what that working class people of Michigan 
Lamar. And even he he came up short against Gary Peters, a very vulnerable first term first term Democrat senator that, that is establishment as they come. And so I think even one of those, if that were true, what you just proposed, one of those races would have broke for the Republicans and they just simply didn't. Great. Well, Connor, thank you for your hard, hard work on this. And it is it, it's been such an interesting year in so many different ways. And I think we're going to spend months still digesting all of this data and figuring out what it is that we can learn. And one thing, one question we're going to continue to follow up on is what does the 2020 election results mean for what happens in Georgia in the important Senate runoff races that are going to happen in January? Uh, So we will be in touch. Thank you, Connor. Coming up after the break, Matt Carpenter is going to tell us what the public thinks about what happened on Election Day. Since the 1973 Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision, Congress and many states have taken various actions to stop taxpayer dollars from funding abortions or the abortion industry. As early as 1976, Congressman Henry Hyde led the effort to ban federal funding for abortions. The federal Hyde Amendment, named after him, established the principle that abortion is not health care and therefore taxpayers should not be forced to fund abortions. Despite these efforts, the abortion industry still receives millions of dollars each year in taxpayer money. In 2019, Planned Parenthood, America's largest abortion provider, received $616.8 million in government funds. Family Research Council's newly updated pro-life map tracks how your state has taken action to stop taxpayer funding of abortions. Go to frc.org slash pro-life maps to see where your state stands in the fight for life. That's frc.org slash pro-life maps. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony Perkins today. My pleasure to be with you as we continue the breakdown of the 2020 elections. One of the things that has been happening since Election Day is a lot of concern about whether the public can trust the results of the election that we just had. Conversations about fraud. We know that the Trump administration has filed lawsuits all over the country 
challenging uh, how ballots were counted, how elections were conducted. And in midst of, of, of this conversation, uh, one of the th- things is whether there's a divide between the way politicos and the partisans are thinking about this election and the way the public is thinking about the election. Does the public trust the results that we just have been told about? And in order to have that conversation, we're going to bring in Matt Carpenter, who's the director of FRC Action. Matt, welcome to the program. Great to be on, Joseph. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for taking the time here. Um, Why don't you tell us, um, what have you learned about how the public is feeling about these election results and whether this is something that they have confidence in? Yeah, I mean, there's been some recent polling that's come out that has shed a lot more light on on this rapidly evolving situation we find ourselves in as a nation right now. And um, the Republic relies on the integrity of our election so that we can have um, you know, the, we, so that we can trust in, in our elected government. Uh, and right now I'm looking at two, some polls from, uh, one is from, uh, Scott Rasmussen, uh, released by, uh, just the news daily of 1200 registered voters. And it shows that less than half of Americans, 49% believe that Joe Biden won the election. Uh, and 34% actually believe Trump won. And th- those are actually, that shows a pretty startling, uh, difference there in how Americans are viewing um, the election results, we, we have to, and I should say also that a lot of the results are still being contested in states. And so this, this is just sort of pairing with, with what we're seeing um, being litigated in the, in the courts right now. Um, and interestingly enough, once you break that number down specifically and start looking at um, groups of voters uh, by partisan affiliation, you see that 77% of voters in that same poll believe that Trump won. Um, who are in the GOP, and then 87% of Democrat voters believe Biden won. So, you know, division in this country is nothing new, and we're seeing this play out even in uh, how people are reading what happened with the, the election on, the, on, on a few weeks ago. That, that there, It's kind of remarkable to me that you would say only 87% of Democrat voters believe that Biden won, which means it suggests that there's 13% of Democrat voters who aren't sure. Which is which is interesting in and of itself to me. Now, do we have historical data? Is this a question that is asked after every election to be able to compare this this uh, result that forty nine percent believe that Biden won the election? Is is it is this a divided issue um, in in the past as well, or are people generally accepting what the results are a couple weeks after an election? Uh, you know, Joseph, I don't have that answer for you, but I can say in these unprecedented times with um, with COVID, for sure, we saw that there was there was a loosening of uh, safeguards put in place around the mail-in vote process. And you you and your and our listeners will recall months ago, um, a lot of governors and in, in states were literally just printing mail-in ballots and sending them to every voter on the voter file, and uh, and there were questions about whether or not those voter files were even being um, cleaned up or kept up. And so what we're starting to see now, and there's another poll that came out recently, which shows, again, more divergence on how viewers, uh, voters, I should say, view that entire mail-in ballot process that we went through just now and that we're still living through now some 220 hours after the polls closed. Um, and I know the Rasmussen Reports poll came out recently um, that the Washington Examiner picked up, which shows that 86% of GOP voters believe that uh, this excessive mail-in voting that we've just seen 
um, was ripe for fraud. Uh, and actually 59% of um, voters overall agree that the mail-in voting process likely increased the potential for fraud in our election system. And surprisingly enough, almost four out of 10 uh, Democrats, 36% of Democrats in this poll also agreed with that statement that mail-in voting is problematic in that regard. So um, I, I can't speak to how, um, you know, historically speaking, the the, um, the parties, the, the voters in each party have uh, have looked at election results, but we can certainly see that in, these, in this unprecedented year, in this unprecedented election, that those divisions are still very, very strongly uh, represented. I think you make a really good point there because with respect to mail-in balloting and the uh, the the new prevalence, uh, there are several states who have been doing mail-in balloting for a long time, but the scale on which it was done this year without really kind of any kind of ramp-up period, it was, oh, we have COVID, now we're going to do mail-in balloting. I think it is not necessarily partisan. Uh, in order to say, yeah, that's, there's opportunities for fraud there. There's opportunities for abuses that can't happen when every single person is required to personally go to the poll. Very quickly, um, any sense about whether the public has any appetite for reforms as a result of what we've gone through? You know, there has to be. There has to be an effort to look at this, and I don't, I don't have any data to back up widespread uh, support for such reform, but legislators and governors are going to have to take a cold look uh, at, what, at what happened in this election and come up with some reforms. You know, you look at Florida, Florida got it done. They, they counted all their ballots and they turned the table since 2000 when they had that recount, um, and they got it done this year. So uh, I've got to say, look to Florida states out there and get your election laws squared away. Matt Carpenter? FRC Action, thank you for joining us. Thanks for your hard work on all of this, and, and especially in just keeping people informed about the things they need to care about. On the other, si- other side of the break, Kena Gonzalez, Director of State and Local Affairs for the Family Research Council, will be with us to talk about local election results, and you're going to be encouraged. Are you looking to grow closer in your relationship with Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of God's Word? Family Research Council has a three-part series titled, Three Ways to Read the Bible. This series shares helpful ways to be encouraged and directed by God's truth by observing the text of the Bible and applying it to your life. There is no better time than now to get to know God through His Word by looking into the Bible to see what it says about itself, God, and humanity. There's no better time than now to begin devoting time to the Lord and to seek out His meaning for you. This blog series is a great primer on opening your eyes and heart to Him through the Bible amid the toils and troubles of today. Check out this helpful resource and learn how to read the Bible with not just your eyes, but with your heart and mind as well. To learn more, visit frcblog.com slash ways to read. That's frcblog.com slash ways to read. When President Donald Trump announced his nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, critics were quick to point not to this qualified nominee's record, but rather to her religious affiliations as a reason she ought not be allowed to serve as a Supreme Court justice. In an increasingly secular culture, it is not only the media that views faith as problematic for those appointed to judicial positions. Senators, particularly Democrats, have inappropriately interrogated nominees with comments and lines of questioning spanning theology, congregation membership, and associations with faith-based nonprofits, all seemingly with the intent to discredit the nominees. 
Family Research Council recently released a publication addressing this important issue. To learn more about what the Constitution says about religious tests, visit frc.org slash religious tests. That's frc.org slash religious tests. The rapidly changing moral landscape of the 21st century presents a challenge for Christians committed to biblical sexual ethics. An uprising against morality has overturned centuries of norms concerning the family, marriage, and human sexuality. Secular culture is not the only challenger of Christian sexual ethics. Increasingly, theologically liberal churches and denominations are rejecting the church's historic teaching on marriage. As a result, Christians are facing increasing pressure to compromise the Bible's teaching on human sexuality. How should Christians who are committed to God's Word respond to these challenges? What does the Bible teach about sexuality? Family Research Council has a new publication that presents the biblical principles for human sexuality. It lays out a survey of culture, scripture, and church history that will help pastors and all Christians meet modern-day challenges to biblical sexuality with truth and love. To access this publication, visit frc.org slash human sexuality. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony Perkins on this Friday the 13th. About to send you into your weekend, I hope, on a really good note. Um, Before we bring our next and last guest for the day on to talk about what happened local in the local elections, I wanted to provide you some survey results yesterday on the program. Uh, Tony uh, did a survey of Washington Watch of the Washington Watch audience to find out what social media platforms are you guys using? What are your favorites? And we have some results that it is my pleasure uh, to play Vanna White today and reveal those results to you. I guess Vanna White didn't do survey results, but you know she revealed other stuff, letters and things. But here we go. Uh, and we're going to start from the least popular to the most popular. And this will be an insult to a lot of people. The least popular social media platform among the Washington Watch listeners is Twitter with 3%. Then we go to Instagram with 4%. So, And then it jumps to Parler with 14%, which is impressive to me since it is a uh, relatively new platform. And then... Facebook with 37%. But none of those are the winner in this survey result. The winner with 42% is I don't use social media. So that's right, Washington Watch. If you are one of those who are not an active social media person, you are one of the many in in this particular audience. So it's interesting that uh, 42% of Washington Watch listeners are not on social media at all. And what that tells me is that you are all happy people because happy people don't use social media. And there's actually a ton of data, especially for teenagers. The more social media that you use, the lower your life satisfaction is. So congratulations to all of you who have chosen happiness over social media. Now, we're going to move to the uh, our last guest of the day, um, and we're going to bring in Kena Gonzalez, who is the director of state and local affairs for the Family Research Council, and he is going to bring us some results from the election all over the country, states, cities, 
I don't know if we have any city councils, but uh, state legislatures in particular. Kena, welcome to the program. Hold on, Joseph. I'm deleting my Twitter account. Okay, I'm ready. You just deleted it. Well, yeah, because you're not actually supposed to be part of the audience if you have Twitter, apparently. But now that you're a guest, so you've gotten that taken care of, scrubbed everything. Good. Well, Kena, thanks for joining us. Um, I know that you have been crunching numbers and data for a long time uh, since Election Day. As you continue to evaluate the election results, what happened at the local level? Joseph, this is my sixth election cycle. Uh, No, it is my, I overestimate, this is my fourth election cycle that I've been crunching numbers at FRC. I've been here nine years, so apparently not very good at math, so I hope our listeners will pardon me. Um, But I have been looking very closely at these numbers, and I'm pretty confident in them because they've been widely reported, not so much in the mainstream media, uh, which has been focused, understandably, on the presidential election. Um, there's a lot of interest there. But at the state level, some amazing things have gone on. And when you, as I have done, look at the numbers historically, it's even more amazing. Um, Democrats in this election were looking to flip between 10 and up to 19 state legislatures across the across the country. These are either the House or the Senate in your local state capital. So far, they have flipped zero. Now, some results are still coming in, but most of the results are already in. And what we know so far is that Republicans flipped the New Hampshire State House and Senate. Those are the only two that have flipped so far in either direction, Uh, although they have pulled within striking distance in the Minnesota House, which is currently controlled by Democrats by a six-seat margin. Uh, Republicans defended the Pennsylvania House uh, and lead by six in the Pennsylvania Senate. Uh, there are 20, uh, 25 or so races uncalled there, and so we're not we're, we're still waiting to see what happens there. Uh, the Alaska House, the Arizona House and Senate, and the Minnesota Senate all remain too close to call. So with those caveats, um, we, what we're seeing is that the supposed blue wave of Democrats retaking state capitals never materialized. Uh, one analyst concluded that Biden had no coattails for down-ballot Democrats, even in states that he has clearly won uh, in the presidential. Uh, Democrats really struggled um, to keep up with, with him, and um, that's, that's an interesting thing. One uh, Democrat operative blamed uh, his party's uh, his party's failure at the state level on their caution about knocking on doors, which is very, very important in these state and local races. Um, as, as we know, the Biden campaign made very few uh, uh, campaign uh, appearances until a few weeks before the election, and even those were very small and muted. And that was down ballot. Uh, Democrats, by and large, did not go door to door. And as this uh, fellow notes in New York, we've never before had a scenario where one party went door to door and the other party didn't. And that's what he chalks up the Republican gains at the state level to is retail politics. Kena, I want to I want to jump in there because I mean it, it's remarkable to me that you would that you note that they were looking for somewhere between ten and nineteen state legislatures 
that were in Republican control that the Democrats thought they could pull into Democrat control. And they succeeded in zero of those. And in fact, the opposite has happened. So do you think it's fair to summarize that, I mean, in light of what you just said about kind of the lack of door to door, that basically COVID is what prevented uh, the Democrats from having the success they wanted at the state level? I think there are a lot of factors, Joseph, but I I think it's also uh, fair to point out that the Democrat Party has grown uh, much more radical in the last uh, not even four years. I would say in the last 12 years, the party platform has shifted sharply to the left. And I think Democrats may be in danger of having already lost touch with the American voter. Um, When it comes to uh, the state legislature, your state house passes the majority of laws that are going to affect you. Congress passes hardly anything. Um, For instance, uh, since the 2010 election, when the Republicans swept to power in the states, despite uh, President Obama's dominance at the national level in 2008 and 2012, um, they managed to pass more pro-life laws since 2010 uh, than had been passed in the previous 30 years uh, since Roe v. Wade. Um, and it seems more and more that Americans are simply in line with Republican policies at the state level. Okay. And, and it is, it's unusual for a winner of the presidency not to have a general kind of down-ballot momentum that he brings with him. Do you think it's fair to say uh, that if the election results stand as they appear to be today, that what voters did on Election Day was essentially a rejection of the personality of Trump and the policies of the left at the same time? Um, Of course, we're waiting for the president's appeals to play out. So with that huge caveat... I would say that the underperformance of Democrats down ballot who did not do as well as Joe Biden did both in states that he carried and in states that he did not, uh, as I said, is a, is a repudiation of the Democrats' radical left leftist agenda on all fronts. Uh, I suspect, I'm not a close observer of the presidential race, but I suspect that personality rather than policy play a huge role in the presidential election. And the reason is that at the state level where I watch, these state-level races have gone to Republicans again and again, not only in this cycle, but under every single, uh, every in every single election since 2010 that Obama presided over. There were some small gains by Democrats in 2018, and many on the left were hoping that that was kind of the harbinger of a, of a blue wave of Democrats surging back to power and restoring the norm. But I think what we've seen in this election is that this is the new norm. Americans are more in line with pro-life, pro-family values espoused by the Republican Party and embodied by their local officials, and they keep returning them to power in overwhelming numbers. And Kena, tell us about why this matters, because a lot of people who even follow politics Typically, most of their attention is on Washington, D.C., and maybe it's just the White House, and then maybe somebody cares a little bit about what's going on in Congress and and, and Senate, in in the U.S. Senate. And for most people, I would say what happens in their state legislature is not something they're following. They don't have any awareness of it. What is it that happened? What are the implications of what we just saw in the election? What does this mean for the next year, two years, ten years uh, for people and our values? 
There are three main implications, Joseph. One, I think, is uh, policy. And we've already touched on that, that, that the overwhelming majorities of pro-life, pro-family Republicans in the state houses have just by sheer volume produced many, many laws that have been enacted. Um, the second is that it affects the, 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 the farm team. Those people at the state level are in effect in training to become national political leaders. And many of them, not all, but many of them will filter up towards Congress, run for Congress, run for the Senate, run for governor. And so the national leadership draws in large part on those who have served at the state level. And Republicans have a remarkable advantage of people on the bench who have experience in policymaking, in public policy and in politics. The third is often overlooked, but people on the left are already sounding the alarm about this. And it's that every 10 years by constitutional duty, uh, the, the houses in the U.S. House of uh, Representatives at the federal level are reapportioned as people move out of, out of states like California that have high tax burdens to uh, states that are pro-family and pro-business like North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Texas, all Republican uh, uh, strongholds when you look at the state legislatures. And, and that means that uh, the California delegation will lose uh, seats in the next reapportionment, which by law is next year. And in many, many, many of the states, in about 20 of the states, uh, of the 35 states that redraw those congressional boundaries uh, by the state legislature, and 20 of them, they'll be redrawn by Republicans who have little or no uh, check from Democrats. And so um, that's important because that will set the stage for the next 10 years of how Republicans and Democrats will compete on the national stage to go to Congress and represent their states. And that really is remarkable. And, and for people who are listening, I hope they understand that these these state level races uh, that get so much less attention uh, have such a dramatic impact, not only on what's going to happen in your state in the next two to four years, but also what's going to happen around the country how these districts are going to be drawn, because as we see these these migration patterns out of California and into these other states, um, there are going to be congressional seats that are lost in California that that appear and show up in in Texas and North Carolina and some of these other places. And the Republican Party will now be in control of how those districts are drawn. And as a result of that, um, it is more likely that those seats will be won by Republicans uh, as opposed to um, as opposed to uh, the, the Democrats. And, and Kana, one other thing I, I want to mention here is how states and, and, and you could expand on this a little bit, how states as a policy matter function as the Petri dishes for what happens in the national policy. I think we've seen this on a lot of issues, but isn't that also another reason why we need to pay attention and really care about what's going on at the state level? Absolutely, Joseph. Uh, conservatives, pro-family conservatives should embrace the notion that the states are the laboratory of democracy and that the more decision-making we can push down to the state and local level, which is closest to the people, um, the better it will be. If, if hyper-liberal states and localities want to experiment with hyper-liberal policies, 
uh, they can do that. Uh, what we've seen, as I alluded to earlier, is a mass migration from the blue states, particularly from the coasts, uh, the, the, the uh, east coast and the left coast, um, to other states where the, where the policies are more reflective of where Americans are generally and where the tax burden in particular is lighter. And so what we've seen is, a, is a, an exodus of people leaving states, and they can choose to do that. Those who have economic mobility can leave states that no longer represent them and flee to states that are better environments for them, perhaps for their family, perhaps a state where they want to uh, raise their children, pursue economic opportunity. And I would argue states that uh, in their social policies as regards um, pro-life uh, laws, as regards uh, uh, laws that protect the rights of conscience, that don't criminalize people for continuing to believe that marriage is intrinsically a pre-political institution of one man and one woman before God, and they don't want to be penalized by their state for believing that, they have the freedom to move in America to states, and they are. They're voting with their feet. So I think this is something that uh, conservatives should embrace. Kenneth Gonzalez, Director of State and Local Affairs for the Family Research Council. Thank you for joining us today. And friends, thank you for being with us today. Thanks for being with us this week. Thanks for being with us this year. You had an into your weekend. There is uncertainty in the world, and that's always going to be the way it is. One of my favorite sayings, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Whatever happens to you this week, this year, you might be surprised God is not. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.